Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Today we're talking Putin, Trump, Russia, America, and this big announcement that uh, Donald Trump has locked in a meeting with with Putin. Uh, he seems to like dictators, doesn't he, Trump? Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment, Keith. But we're going to explore as well um, just the relationship historically between Russia and America has been very, very tenuous. So this announcement, Keith, um, are we surprised by it? We know that he's always wanted to meet Putin. Well, he met Putin, of course, at the end of last year at the uh, on the sidelines of a regional conference. So he's had one meeting with him. Um, but you're right, he does have a flair for dictatorships. And one of the worries that the allies in Europe have got is that Trump might treat them as badly as he treated South Korea and Japan. If you remember back to his meeting with the North Korean leader, at the media conference after the event, Trump suddenly announced the um, suspension of military exercises with South Korea um, and that took the South Koreans by surprise. The worry for the Europeans is will Trump pull another rabbit out of the hat this time round uh, because of the, um, the Europeans taking a hard line because of the Russian reoccupation or occupation of Crimea, depending on your point of view. And also, you know, we've got sanctions against Russia. Will he try to uh, reduce those sanctions? Um, and the, at the back of all of this is still all of the scandal around the 2016 US presidential election. And remember, we still had the special investigator looking into this Um I'm not sure that there is any big scandal in terms of interfering in the election, um, which is what they're investigating. My view is that Mrs Clinton should simply accept that she lost the election and move on and let the Democrats move on. But for those of us who have followed Trump over the years, the real issue with Trump and Russia is the extent to which he may be indebted to the Russians. So in other words, Trump, because of his business model, which is to keep declaring himself bankrupt um, and leaving creditors in the lurch. He, at the end of his um, real estate career, was having difficulty being able to borrow from American banks. And so he borrowed money from Deutsche Bank, which has an interesting question mark over it. You know, we're all worried about the collapse of banking. And the one that we're keeping an eye on is Deutsche Bank. But that's a separate story, which we'll need to look at at some point. But the suspicion we've got is that Deutsche raise their money from Russia. So in a sense, Trump has a level of indebtedness to Russian interests. So that's the issue. Now, that's why we're intrigued about Trump's financial records, which he won't publish, but which would reveal the extent to which he may be in debt to Russian interests. And effectively, all Russian interests ultimately go back to Putin one way or another. Even if Putin isn't directly in charge of the funds, he would ha- he would know the people who are lending the money. Um, and so, as well, Donald Trump, I think it's on the record that he has very um, been very focused on getting a Trump hotel in Russia, Russia for many years. Yep, that's right. So this is part of his wider real estate program. So who knows what dirt the Russians may have on him separately. This is separate from the so-called steel dossier with... Um, um, Again, I think the question marks over that, but Steele was a former British um, security agent, intelligence agent, who was commissioned ironically by a supporter of Mrs Clinton to dig up dirt on Trump. 
And it is this dossier which has bounced around in intelligence circles, uh, which has triggered a lot of interest. So I say these are unverified claims. Steele himself can't get back into Russia because the Russians would immediately be suspicious of anything that he does. But somehow he's used his contacts and has produced a series of memos which then constitute this report, uh, which makes certain allegations, for example, um, Trump's behaviour uh, in a hotel room with a couple of uh, Russian prostitutes. Um, again, I'm not sure that there's much in that dossier, but again, it, it, there are a lot of people who would have question marks over Trump's ability to negotiate with the Russians because they may have that leverage over him. Another concern the Europeans have got is simply that Trump is not a good negotiator. He doesn't read the policy briefs. He's not thorough. He's not clear in his use of English. So remember, Putin doesn't necessarily speak English. In fact, doesn't speak English. He's fluent in German because he was expecting to be occupying Germany. Uh, so he's never really bothered to learn English. Although in my experience of dealing with Russians, like Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, I've had conversations with Gorbachev. He's one of my colleagues in the Club of Rome. He will understand English but will not reply in English because he knows that everything he's going to say is going to get repeated. So he works for an interpreter. So he understands what you're saying, but he relies on the interpreter to give you his reply. My guess is that if Putin does know any words of English, he will still nonetheless rely on an interpreter. The problem for an interpreter is trying to make sense of what Donald Trump has to say with his mangled style of English. So there are a number of reasons why people are very worried about Trump and Putin having this important summit conference. Remember, this is different from having a conversation on the sidelines of a regional conference. This is going to be a summit conference, probably in Scandinavia, certainly in a third country. Uh, it'll be a major diplomatic event. Um, and so the European allies are very worried about how Trump will behave. Plus, there are obviously members of the US uh, foreign policy community are also worried about Trump. So if there is all these dossiers on Trump and what dirt the Russians might have on him and that Trump might owe them a lot of money and that he's been trying at this hotel there, if Trump knows that the intelligence community and the wider community of the world know all this, why is he so upfront with the American people and going on about Russia all the time and wanting to befriend Russia? Well, because that's obviously part of his uh, desire to have a charm offensive towards Russia. And he made that clear in the 2016 election. Remember the context in which he was speaking. He was talking about America, the phrase I would use, which is an old American phrase, come home America. In other words, reduce your overseas commitments. So he was a critic of the invasion of Iraq. Um, he um, sacked a previous national security advisor because he wanted to increase America's involvement in Afghanistan and... Um, and he got rid of that general and then put in this hard line of John Bolton. So we're, we're all a little confused. Now, he's not... The, the signals coming out of the White House are not clear. So he's he's put in John Bolton, who, who was the, the architect or one of the architects of the 2003 Iraq invasion, which was a disaster. Um, Bolton is on the record as wanting to bomb North Korea. Um, he want, uh, So he's a very aggressive person. And ironically... The announcement to which you've just referred about this forthcoming summit conference has come from John Bolton being in Moscow. It really should be the US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. That's his job. So uh, Trump is running a chaotic White House in, in so many respects. So let's look um, then traditionally at the Russia-American relationship. 
Has there ever been a time in modern history where Russia and America have gotten on? Yes, of course, World War II. So uh, to give you a potted history, I might go back over 100, over 100 years, 150 years. So there was a, a French writer who foreshadowed the two superpowers of the 20th century would be the United States and Tsarist Russia. So he'd already decided that the era of the European colonies were coming to an end. This is the Tocqueville. The, the era was coming to an end and that the two emerging powers would be the United States and Tsarist Russia. And so he was warning about these two powers emerging onto the world scene. And he was spot on, except by 1917, there had been a revolution in Russia. The Tsars had gone. So the irony then is that we have um, a United States, which before 1917 and its involvement in World War I, uh, the United States was not heavily engaged in world affairs. It was it was expanding west to um, occupy what is now currently the United States of America, including taking over Texas and, and California. So they wanted to consolidate control. And then they moved in at uh, the turn of, of the last century just to pick up Spanish colonies as the Spanish Empire in the Americas was declining. So they... You know, they end up with picking up real estate in the Philippines, etc. But they were not a major player. In 1917, World War One had been under underway for three years. The um, Americans at last get involved in the war. In fact, uh, July 4 is the Battle of Amal, uh, where Sir John Monash controlled American troops in their first engagement with the German enemy and produced a success. So Sir John Monash, you know, that's a good question for Trivial Pursuits. Have you ever had an Australian general in charge of American troops? Yes, July 4, 1918. That's why he said the date, because he knew it's sacred in American history. So 1917, 1918, the United States gets involved in uh, World War One, and then uh, sees itself as um, a modern-day saviour. Um, so Woodrow Wilson... Uh, my grandmother actually saw him when he visited England and he was treated like a messiah and had that messiah complex, uh, which, you know, later corrupt politicians disagree with. But, you know, here was the Americans who decided that they had a grand new vision for a world without war, controlled through the League of Nations and following America as a symbol of civilization in the world. So that's 1917. The Americans emerge onto the world scene. Meanwhile, over in the Tsarist Russia, 1917, 1918, you get the Russian Revolution, the Tsars are overthrown, and you get the communists in control. Now, Lenin decides to withdraw Russia from World War I, does a deal with Germany. So in 1917, we almost get uh, what de Tocqueville was warning about, which is America and Russia colliding head-on. Instead, Russia withdraws from World War I and is then um, isolated by the international community. But the United States in the early 1920s becomes isolationist. Remember, this is the longest continuous theme in American politics. We don't get involved in other people's affairs. So the America never joined the League of Nations, helped create it, but never joined it and was out of international affairs in the 1920s and 1930s. So, in other words, in 1917, the expected rise of the two powers didn't actually take place. And then, so you get the 1920s, 1930s, 
And the same for the United States, again, isolated pretty well from world affairs. Our onset of World War II in 1939, um, the United States remains neutral, though clearly sympathetic towards the United Kingdom. And Russia is in an alliance with Germany um, because it enabled Hitler to be free to invade the Western Front. Um, But then Hitler broke that agreement and invaded Russia in 1940, June 1940. So Churchill, having been strongly anti-communist, said, uh, I'm now going to have to support the old Soviet Union. And this is the British PM at the time. This is the British Prime Minister at the time. So made his reputation being anti-communist, but instead becomes a friend of Joseph Stalin. So that begins for Britain from um, uh, June of 41 onwards. And then on December 7, 1941, Japan attacks Pearl Harbour. Now, that was actually a separate area of operations. But Hitler thankfully, declared war on the United States. Hitler decided that he would be an ally of Japan. They had a a treaty which Hitler decided to honour. So thankfully, Hitler declared war on the United States and forced the United States to join World War II. The Japanese had already done that a day earlier. So by the time we reach December 1941, we have the big three of World War II. So you've got the United Kingdom, which have been doing the heavy lifting for the previous year, the old Soviet Union, and you've got the United States. And those uh, three countries running through until 1945 were strong allies and working together. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking about the meeting that is going to take place between Trump and Putin um, the Russian president in, I think, a couple of weeks. I'm not sure if there's That's been right. a... Yeah, okay. no, no date yet announced. And so as a broader sort of issue, we're talking about the history of the relationship between Russia and America because we're trying to understand what he wants to gain, especially the last couple of years, really, Russia has not had many friends in the world except for perhaps China and Syria, obviously. Yeah. So we're wondering what the agenda is here, the bigger agenda. So we're looking back at the history. We've gotten to the end of World War Two. Yep, so uh, that's the turning point. So 1945... Britain is bankrupt um, and really disappearing from the world scene, but it took a while for them to acknowledge that. So you get, therefore, the United States now as the number one power um, with the Soviet Union. Now, the president who who died in 1945, President Roosevelt, was hoping, a bit, a bit like Woodrow Wilson, better create a whole new world. They invented the United Nations this time to replace the League of Nations, um, So, again, very optimistic in his dealings, but he died in April of 1945, just before the end of the war. And so um, we get this period, and and this is a goldmine for historians, they're still arguing as to who started the Cold War. Um, Was it the fact that the Soviet Union was gobbling up so much of Eastern Europe? Remember, Britain nominally had gone to war in 1939 to save Poland from the Germans. They finished the war with the Soviet Union occupying Poland. So in a sense, Poland was not going to be free until 1991. So we get the Soviet Union occupying Eastern Europe. You get the creation of um, the Iron Curtain, um, which is from Winston Churchill's phrase. Um, And so we then get this period where the two major superpowers armed against one another. And so we've had from 1945 until 1990, with the the effective collapse of the Soviet Union, we've had this period 
um, of chaos uh, and confrontation. Um, thankfully, the US and the Soviet Union never fought each other head on, but they did fight in other people's territories, Korea, Vietnam, large areas of Africa. Um, but then in 1990, the Soviet Union collapsed. And so we then get this period of chaos in Russia as the Russians try to get their act together and, and introduce a market system and all the rest of it. Putin comes to power later on, aware of the chaos in Russia, with the decision that he's going to modernise Russia but go back to a dictatorship. OK, not communist. Um, you can take a person out of the KGB, but you can't take the KGB out of the person. So he's still very much a dictator, but OK, not not communist. He goes to all these Russian Orthodox religious festivals, etc. So he's not a communist, but he is a dictator. And there are some people who say, well, Russians like having dictators. They feel as though they've got to have a father figure running them, either the Tsar or Stalin or now Putin. And so he's managed by rotating himself between the role of president and prime minister to remain in power for a very long time. So he's someone who's very much in control of the situation. And this takes us back to the worries that people have got with Putin, who's a super smart operator, negotiating with Trump, who's, who's well, not, well uh, <laughs> not experienced, not experienced, let's say, not experienced in international... I saw you fumbling around for the right words <laughs> oh, then, probably, you're right. I was, I was hunting around for the right word. That's why so many Europeans will be shocked by today's announcement. As I say, the American foreign policy community will also be troubled. It was inevitable that we would have a summit conference, but then no doubt the Russians have been minutely investigating Trump's behaviour with the North Korean leader and figure this is a good time to have a meeting when clearly this amateur is still uh, with exaggerated views about his influence. After all, he lost that meeting with the North Korean leader. The North Korean leader won that summit conference and now the Russians are hoping to do equally well. So why, who are Putin's friends? Who are Russia's friends in the world? Oh, Russia has quite a few friends. and But don't forget, it's an economy now which is just about the size of Canada's. You know, one of the great um, re remarkable things of the Soviet Union, not that I endorse the Soviet Union, but one has to acknowledge that... Um, Running an economy, as we now know, is about the size of Canada's. Nonetheless, they were able to develop nuclear weapons and uh, play a key role in uh, the exploration of outer space, including building the International Space Station, which the Americans and others are using. So you can do that by running a, a controlled economy, what's called an autarky. So in other words, instead of wasting money on varieties of tubes of toothpaste, there's one brand. Within, within the old Soviet Union. So you could have one brand and it was a central committee that planned how many tubes of toothpaste would be created. So then we get, we get a situation where a centrally controlled economy can put people into outer space. Remember, they got there before the Americans to start with, going all back 60-odd years. You can do that um, if you have a controlled economy. And that's what Putin realises now, that you've got to have control over the levers of the economy. And that way, even though it's it's a small economy, Russia figures it, it can still punch above its weight because it's far more centrally controlled, whereas the poor old United States is in disarray. And so that's what they're counting on for being able to, in their negotiations with Putin. So the Russians provide, um, obviously, military support for Syria, as you've identified, good allies of Iran, 
And they're also, you still run across them in, in what used to be called third world countries, non-aligned countries. Well, so let's speak about Iran then for a second. So if um, Putin is pro-Iran and Russia has a great relationship with them and then um, Trump is obviously anti-Iran, yeah. having cracked down on them recently for their nuclear program that he yeah. says is still in existence while all these people said, no, it doesn't. Um, what what will they gain out of that conversation? For the Russians? Mm. Oh, the Russians um, are obviously looking upon Iran. There's a long history, which I think Ooh, is subject for a separate talk. <laughs> another show, because the Russians have occupied Iran. And remember, they're right on the border. And so the Russians like to have a say in how Iran is governed, even though, of course, it's it's a, a Shia-dominated country. Um, but they, they like their involvement there in Iran. And the Russian policy is just to make mischief where they can around the world. But then, you know, you could say the same about the Americans, they also enjoy making mischief around the world. It's just the Russians, as I say, are now able to punch above their weight. So who will come out of the Putin-Trump meeting looking the best? Oh, I think, I fear it'll be Putin. Mm. Because Putin is a very shrewd operator. He's had a lot more experience in handling uh, international negotiations at the top level, and he reads his material. Everybody I've run across who knows him have said, you know, he's a smart operator. Look, you don't survive in the Soviet Union. Or the KGB. <laughs> or the KGB if you're a dummy. Uh, so it, it is interesting. But So my fear is that Putin is going to do well out of this and there are going to be uh, problems, I fear, for America's European allies. So when you look at the global scene, the Americans or Trump offended South Korea and Japan over North Korea. What's Trump going to do now for the partnerships with the Europeans? Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Live Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.